Welcome to the latest edition of Spotlight, a PEI Group podcast that delves into the very latest in private markets investing. I am Adam Lay, Senior Editor based in London. This year, Private Equity International turns 21. That's right, it's been 21 years since our very first magazine issue in 2001. And to celebrate this, we've identified 21 change makers, 21 people and groups who've influenced the private equity industry more so than anybody else. I recently sat down with two of those changemakers. Jeremy Collar is founder and CIO of Collar Capital, a pioneering secondaries firm that's investing its latest fund at $9 billion. And Nigel Dawn, Senior Managing Director and Head of Private Capital Advisory at Evercore, one of the biggest financial advisors in the secondaries industry. Both have helped drive the secondaries market's evolution to the $130-odd billion industry that it is today. Here's our conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Jeremy and Nigel, welcome to PEI Spotlight. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So first things first, I have to ask, do you both already know each other? (laughs) You could say that. (laughs) I think we've known each other probably going back over 20 years. Can you remember the first time you met? Was it it on a deal? Was it at a conference, um, a meeting, something like that? I don't. Do you, Nigel? No, I think those memory cells, unfortunately, have, uh, have gone. But you were at UBS. So I was, yeah, that, that, that's where I started off. Actually, I think, you know, where we originally met is that I was selling a portfolio of assets. And I met Jeremy initially in the context of a potential buyer of that portfolio. And I think we met just because I was looking for ideas, how we might sell the portfolio, how we might construct it. And, you know, Jeremy was obviously an obvious person to go to to get advice. I mean, it's it's so fascinating. Just thinking back to that time, I'm assuming it was in the kind of late 90s or perhaps even earlier, something like that. And then fast forwarding to today, so much has happened in the evolution of the secondaries market. Did you ever imagine that the secondaries market could evolve to what it has been today? You know, I always thought that secondaries are a natural consequence of any large pool of capital. So it was always going to be inevitable. But when I started my first fund... I mean, I did 10 secondaries when I was at a pension plan, the first 10 secondaries in Europe. But when I started the fund, honestly, people said, why do you want to buy other people's rubbish, trash? And, you know, it was very difficult to convince people that it was going to be a growing market. It was just after the Gulf War. And I think part of the marketing was tactical. It's a one-off opportunity. And it may disappear because everyone said it was going to disappear. So... You know, arguing against that would have been very difficult. I think that's right. I was saying I'm starting it as an advisor because I really got active after the internet bust up in 2001. And of course, many banks were selling at that time because they were, you know, had private equity assets on their balance sheet. There was changes in regulation. And there was a view where we'll sell these assets and then the market's over. There was, it was a viewpoint that many had because there was very, very little history prior to that of selling. You know, when you think about the public equity markets, right, the secondary trading is a multiple, multiple of primary. But in the secondary market, you know, back then, I think, Jeremy, maybe early 2000s, it was maybe a $6 billion total, a total market. We raised the largest fund in 1998 at $200 million. The largest fund again in 2000 at 500 million. And then in 2002, raised a $2.5 billion fund. 
And, and probably these days, a $6 billion fund would be regarded as medium-sized. I might be wrong here, Jeremy, but I seem to remember at one point you thought or you speculated that a secondary fund may be the first one to get to $30 billion. Yes, exactly. And certainly we will be called private equity and buyouts and venture will be called primary capital. And you can laugh at that, but then if you buy Google, it's a secondary. Most of the turnover in the public markets is our secondaries or in the real estate markets, etc. And I, I think it's, Adam, I mean, this may be, I mean, at the time, I think when Jeremy said that, you know, folk thought, well, that's kind of crazy, right? Because the secondary market was pretty small at the time. But a secondary market, secondary fund should be naturally larger than most primary funds because most primary funds just do one thing. For example, it's U.S. buyouts. So all they can do is U.S. buyouts where a secondary fund can buy any vintage, any geography, any strategy. And so the pool of potential assets for secondaries, you know, to go fishing in is much larger than if all your fund does is U.S. buyouts or European buyouts or Asian buyouts. So it's not unnatural that the size of secondary funds over time would dwarf primary funds. Mm. And so in this world where uh, a secondaries fund is kind of $30 billion in size, that's a world in which secondaries, as you say, Jeremy, is the main market. You've both mentioned kind of, you know, Jeremy, you mentioned the Gulf War. Nigel, you mentioned the dot-com bubble and and crash. It's very interesting that you you both kind of mention sort of times of volatility in terms of being linked to, I guess, milestones in the development of the secondaries market. A two-pronged question. How interlinked are times of volatility with secondaries trading? And I guess what does that mean for, you know, the situation that we find ourselves in today at the end of 2022? Well, I mean, maybe to start off, I find that you know, times of volatility or very difficult markets lead to creativity. Because when things are really good, you don't really need to have to think. But when markets are very difficult, it requires creativity to be able to transact. And what that generates, I think, generally is, you know, more interesting transaction structures, new transaction structures. You know, after the great financial crisis, for example, it seemed to become much more acceptable to transact. Because LPs then suddenly it was, well, you know, we need to actively manage our portfolios in the same way as a GP manages theirs. So prior to that, regulation was one of the factors that often drove volumes, whereas most of LP volume these days, actually LPs selling old vintages, selling non-corpus, you know, they're actively managing their portfolios to try and maximize the return for their uh, investors, as opposed to a regulation, meaning they have to sell. But we're also going through a down cycle for liquidity. And what that means is liquidity is more expensive in general. What that also means is solutions are more valuable and pricing is stronger for a secondary player. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned pricing. Somebody mentioned to me the other day that, that 85 is the new par. Yeah, but may I say that's the wrong way to look at it? Because let's say you're looking at a VC portfolio. We're going through now globally, an earnings recession. So you buy at 85% of value of, you know, six months ago, and a number of businesses aren't EBITDA positive. It's really doing a very strong analysis on the underlying companies. The days of 20 times EBITDA, 20 times revenue, we've come out of that cycle. You know, we've got this global earnings recession, we're going to see policy normalization, which means real positive interest rates. We've gone through a period where 
corporate growth outpaced GDP. And going forward, we're going to see, in a way, GDP growth needing to outperform corporate growth and, you know, with positive interest rates, etc. So that's it's going to be a whole different ball game. And actually, we've seen a lot of secondary players. You know, very few secondary players have lost money for their funds, which has been fantastic 30-year run. That's about to have come to an abrupt end. So I, I think it's fair. I mean, what Jeremy is saying is like 85% of what? Because, you know, 85% of a stale GP value or many investors will say, well, the GP's value at the end of the year is likely to be 10% lower than it is now when the valuations have been audited. So it's really 95. And so in other words, you know, it could be 95 off that valuation, 95% off the intrinsic value, you know, so it's a little bit misleading because there's always, you know, a fair amount of art in valuations, you know, as much as science. Mm -hmm. So pricing can be quite optical and is in the eye of the beholder. And as you mentioned, Jeremy, we're in changed times. You mentioned sort of things like interest rates. We've talked a lot about the kind of potential for growth and the growth of the secondaries market. But I wonder in, in both of your minds, I mean, as veterans of this industry, and you've obviously invested and seen the market change through different crises, does this one kind of, does this time round feel different in terms of, you know, interest rates being on the up, you know, the highest in 15 years, whatever it is, kind of political threats around the world, you know, war in Europe. Is this the most volatile and challenging environment that you've ever seen for the secondaries market? Well, we're going to see hard landings in Germany and the UK for sure. The US will model through. But, you know, this is no different. There was a Gulf War in 1991 was the first Gulf War. Asia and then the internet bubble burst in 99. Then you had financial crisis in 2008. And then we had a new paradigm shift. The last decade was a paradigm shift to free money. And that's coming to an end now. And it's very clear to me that people are going to be caught with their pants down now. And I I think that's right. I mean, that it's been almost like a 12 year run where money is free, and the value of liquidity is low. And At this point, being a liquidity provider in this market is incredibly valuable. You know, as LPs find that distributions naturally from their portfolios have reduced dramatically in 22 compared to 21. So the secondary market is like, in some ways, it's probably one of the most interesting times in the last 12 years to be investing as a secondary investor. And where do you see the biggest growth opportunities, I guess, over the next sort of 10, 20 years? Everywhere. Actually, no, because every strategy becomes a secondary. You know, when I started, we raised a 50 million fund, euro fund, and it took four years to raise and it invested in everything. What we've done is we've kept that agility because as all the markets have started, you know, we've been doing credit since 2009. But now that it's deep and, you know, it's a very deep and wide credit market, we launched a credit secondaries fund, one and a half billion last year. And other groups have launched real estate and infrastructure funds, every single market. I I think if I was to pick one less interesting, potentially, it would be infrastructure, surprisingly, because interest rates going up, these are very long term investments. It'll be interesting to see how their valuations come through in the new market cycle, because they're very long term investments as well. And tactically, you've got real estate going through turmoil at the moment. Sorry, Nigel, do you agree? 
Yeah, I do. Well, well, I I think you're right, is that some of the sub-strategies that have developed in the last few years, and infrastructures being one, real estate that really came before that, and now private debt could be huge. I mean, that's the thing. And it's only, you know, Jeremy said earlier that you have the secondary market off the back of a healthy primary market. So you had this huge growth in private credit over the last 10 to 15 years. Like the banks are not in these markets as well. And particularly a year like this, where a significant number of leveraged loans are hung with banks and they're sitting on huge losses that the private credit market for the first time has really stepped up as a primary funder for many, you know, uh, a buyout loans. So what's happened in the past where an LP wanted to sell, say, private debt, a secondary fund that had equity return expectations just paid it, you know, had to charge a larger discount where there's more appropriate cost of capital now to buy debt, to buy infrastructure. I think Jeremy's, you know, it's an interesting point with infrastructure. It's certainly a growth area. And in some ways, because it's longer term, there should be more of a secondary market so LPs can get out when they want to, you know, if they decide that it is non-core. So I think it's going to grow. I think that the market conditions will clearly going to impact it. But there's a lot of interest in, you know, very long-term stable returns. There was a lot more interest in that before there was, you know, 7 or 8% mortgage rates. <laughs> you know, it's... It's a little bit of a different market. By the way, just to tell you the opportunity in credit, you know, if you think about it, it was about half a billion, the whole market for private credit in 2012. Last year, it well, this year, we're expecting it to be about 17 billion, up from 15 billion last year. And next four years, growing to 50 billion or so. So we're talking about a primary market that's grown from nothing effectively after the financial crisis, to still a relatively small, uh, I mean, we're talking about the secondaries market, by the way, uh, but, you know, 50 billion in, by 2026. We've spoken a lot about the biggest opportunities in terms of asset classes and regions and that kind of thing. I have to ask, when you think about the biggest threats to the growth of the market as veterans of this industry, what do you seriously think could put a dampener on the market's growth, be that short-term or be that long-term? Oh, that's easy, fundraising at <laughs> the moment. Yeah. I mean, to Jeremy's point, that if you look at the transaction volume last year was about $130 billion. There was less than one year's dry powder available in the secondary market. No other private market, I believe, would have that ratio. And it's often three or four years. So right now, I think this works out over time. But the number one constraint for the growth of the market is not good deals. It's not good GPs. It's really available capital from my perspective. And actually from all of us, because the deal flow, you know, we do about 1% of our deal flow. So that's an enormous amount of investment opportunity left on the table. Another challenge I, I would just posit is with... GP-leds, you know, depending how the SEC look at it and regulations, et cetera. That could be another challenge. And then the third challenge, I think, is something I mentioned before, which is secondaries have had an amazing run in terms of performance because it was easy money and buying at a discount meant it went up from there. I would predict that like all asset management 
we're going to see a differentiation now, a big differentiation now in performance. You know, it's easy to buy and be beta and just everything goes up. And very frustrating for a group like us when you have, you know, your returns don't look that different because the market just keeps going up so much. That will change now. And we'll see that being uncovered over the next months. I agree. And I think for back to what Jeremy was saying on GP-led, I mean, ultimately where not only the SEC comes out, because I think the most recent regulations are actually you know, fairly supportive, but also ILPA and ILPA guidelines, and that's the, you know, the industry investor body. But also longer term, I think, for the secondary industry and the advisory community to make the case that GP-driven transactions are actually good for LPs and create a lot of optionality that didn't exist before. And, you know, LPs instinctively don't like conflicts. Why would they? So I think that, you know, the SEC, ILPA, making the case, and if all this comes together, the the opportunity for growth on the GP side, I mean, GP-driven transactions were 50% of the market last year, which no one could have imagined. And you know, 25% of the market was just single companies. And that and that's up from 2 to 3% three to four years ago. I didn't see that, that's for sure. So, you know, the, the opportunity is significant because in terms of acceptance then, you know, it wasn't too long ago, and Jeremy will remember this, where one sponsor selling to another sponsor was frowned on. It was sort of seen as almost a failure. They've done all the work. Why would you do a buyout that someone else has done the work on? Exactly. So if, if one sponsor's done all the work, why would they want to sell it? And particularly one of the best companies to another sponsor. So they can, so this is, this has spawned the uh, GP driven, particularly the single asset market, but also the multi asset market. So over time, you would imagine that a significant portion of the sponsor to sponsor market actually would go into continuation funds because, you know, instead of selling your best companies to another sponsor, you have a structure whereby you can continue to participate. So I think it's a really positive evolution, but it's still an evolution. It's not a finished item. And the rules of the game, you know, are evolving. So for instance, having a continuation fund, you know, on a 12-year-old fund and the GPs kept their best assets because it's continuing to grow, doing a continuation fund and, and those that need to sell, sell. But there has to be an allowance for LPs to roll over with the economics that they had originally. To me, even if I'm a secondary player and it's against my interests, it wouldn't be right for an, an original LP not to have the chance to roll over. I want to finish with two last questions. Um, thinking about, I guess, the state of private markets in general, if you had a magic wand, what one thing would you change about private markets? Nigel, would you like to go first? Um, if I could change one thing, it would be much more broad access for investors than you have right now. Because I think the benefits of private markets and the return potential, you know, has been more limited than it should have been. So if you have more people accessing the benefits, then one is you will raise more capital, but then it would seem a fairer distribution of the profits if more people get access. Democratize, what he's saying is democratization of access. Now with Technology, you've got ICAP and others that are, you know, can allow access for private wealth, etc., not just the super wealthy and the institutions. 
to broaden any access to retail investors, mom and pop investors, 401ks, everything from that so that the average person can invest in private equity. Very good. I think, you know, for me, ESG has been very important. and I've learned one thing. And I would suggest that what has been very powerful for me is to have an independent board of directors. I find it a bit ironic that private equity talks very loudly about how important it is to have governance, direct governance over the investments they hold, and yet don't put a board in place for themselves unless they're public. I would suggest that there should be boards of directors of uh, private equity firms that aren't public for their own benefit, for their own benefit. It's been a huge benefit to me to have super qualified, super qualified and people that have a go at me, both for the team and for me. Makes sense. Um, The final question is just a completely separate one. You know, we've been talking a lot about secondaries and a little bit about your careers as well. Random question, if you weren't in secondaries, if you weren't in private markets, what do you think you'd be doing? I've been an animal rights activist. (laughs) I thought you might say that, Jeremy. No, if I can give a plug for FAIR, F-A-I-R-R, it's the Farm Animal Investment Risk and Return. It's the fastest growing ESG network in the world at $69 trillion in seven years. Yeah, and it's really changed the face of food. And anybody who wants to find out more about FAIR can obviously go to Collar's website or can look up FAIR in Google. Doesn't cost anything to join and bridges the knowledge gap for investors and uh, engages where investors want to. So we just had $18 trillion asking the Food and Agricultural Organization at the climate conference, COP27, successfully for the first time in 27 years to put food on the agenda and come up with a roadmap like they have for energy by this time next year, which means there'll be a level playing field like there has been for energy for investors to navigate uh, what they want to invest in, etc. But anyway, enough of what, what, what would you be doing, Nigel? Well, I'm nowhere near as virtuous as you. I would be manager of Sheffield United. <laughs> I also had a suspicion you would say that, Nigel. <laughs> Either that or playing in a band. Either that or playing in a band. Well, I started off as a bass player, but I got fired because I didn't have any rhythm. So, which, is, of course, is a drawback if you're a bass player. But that's because you became an accountant. <laughs> that's all for this installment. If you like what you've heard today, please be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or listen at any of PEI Group's various titles online. I'm Adam Lay. Thanks for listening.